Chapter 11, Opioids and, quote, Pain Management. Warren Buffett wrote, I'll tell you why I like the cigarette business. They cost a penny to make, sell for a dollar, it's addictive, and there's a fantastic brand loyalty. Introduction. By 2019, opioids were killing approximately 50,000 U.S. citizens a year, up from 8,000 in 1999. This is more deaths than firearms at 33,000, breast cancer, 41,000, HIV, 15,000, or motor vehicle accidents at 37,000. In 2018 to 19, the total fatalities exceeded our combined combat deaths in Iraq, Vietnam, and Afghanistan. Until recently, prescription rather than street opioids caused the most deaths. The per capita fatalities differ in each state, suggesting that local factors such as enforcement, economics, and education may contribute. Street opioids and prescription opioids are chemically identical. This class includes heroin, which is illegal, plus morphine, methadone, Vicodin, fentanyl, and Demerol, which all have recognized medical uses, but are also sought illegally. Oxycontin, oxycodone, is another prescription that has the street name of Oxy. Purdue Pharma, the patent owner, told the world it was safe. They distributed it widely and made billions of dollars. They marketed it with free samples, the same method the drug cartels use, but the dealers, to their credit, never claimed their product was harmless. Background. These opioids are effective pain relievers, traditionally used for cancer, heart attacks, severe injuries, and post-surgical pain. Opium, made from a flower, was the first of these drugs and has been used for thousands of years. Morphine was derived from opium in the early 1800s and heroin from morphine in 1874. These three, plus codeine, are derived from plants. They are opiates. The other drugs, along with modern codeine, are manufactured in the laboratory. Side effects include sleepiness, nausea, low blood pressure, and constipation. With continued use, patients become tolerant, which means they need higher and higher doses to get the same effect. There is a withdrawal syndrome that is not life-threatening, but involves several days of terrific discomfort. The symptoms include sweating, muscle aches, nausea, vomiting, sleeplessness, restlessness, anxiety, diarrhea, and high blood pressure. Anyone who uses opioids for prolonged periods can get this withdrawal, but addiction is different and much worse. This means users cannot stop the drugs. Junkie behavior is the usual result. This runs the gamut from relationship destruction up to entering a criminal lifestyle to get enough money for the next fix. These basics have been well known for more than a century. Overdose deaths happen because of stopped breathing. When users combine opioids with other sedatives or alcohol, the risk is much higher. Narcan, or naloxone, is an antidote that reverses opioid effects and can save an overdose victim if given before they suffocate. It lasts a shorter time than most opioids, so people receiving it must be watched for several hours to be sure they keep breathing. The drug is now over-the-counter and available at Walgreens in 35 states and even many high schools. Although naloxone has been available for over 50 years and is generic, the drug makers have found a way to price gouge. They patented a nasal spray device that costs $150 for a two-pack. Another pharmaceutical company created an injection system in 2016 and jacked the price up from $690 to $4,500. 
It was designed to be carried around by addicts for emergencies. The company rushed it through a perfunctory FDA approval process without the usual study. Dr. Katz's comment about this was, Most of these addicts are barely functional, and this pricey medication is provided by state support. Having naloxone as a psychological margin of safety encourages addicts to abuse higher and riskier doses. The causes of addiction are unclear. Most people are not very vulnerable and do not search for more drugs when their pain stops. They can become tolerant, however. They then need larger and larger doses to treat pain, and they get withdrawal symptoms. These people are dependent, but can withdraw from the drug whenever they want. Others are susceptible to addiction and get hooked right away. Jason Smith, an addict, described his initial experience after a Demerol shot for back pain when he was 17. Quote, that first hit, there's nothing like it in the natural world. I was in love. This feeling, I didn't want it to stop. I wanted to feel this way forever and ever. The shame, the self-hatred, the guilt, it disappeared. For 15 years, he was beaten up, was in and out of jail, and did, quote, dirty, conniving, manipulative, inhumane stuff to scam people out of the money to buy his drugs. He was always looking for another fentanyl patch to suck on. He only used prescriptions and never heroin from the street. What percent of people are vulnerable? A 2014 study in the BMJ entitled Rates and Risk Factors for Prolonged Opioid Use After Major Surgery followed 39,000 post-surgical patients who had never used opioids. Only 3% remained on the medication for over 90 days. A 2017 survey of 36,000 surgery patients who used these drugs for the first time revealed that 5 to 6% stayed on them long after their recovery. A history of smoking, depression, or abuse of alcohol or drugs increased the risk. The surgery and pain intensity had no relationship to prolonged usage. Another trial from 2006 to 15 studied a million insured patients whose doctors gave them opioids for the first time. Usage persisted in about 5 to 30 percent of them. The ones taking larger quantities during their illness were more likely to have long-term addiction. Addicts or pain patients can sometimes take over 10 times the ordinary dose, which would be fatal for the uninitiated. Hydrocodone, which is Norco or Vicodin, is the same strength per milligram as morphine, so 100 of the 10 milligram tablets is 1,000 milligrams. Some people work up to taking this much, quote, morphine equivalent every 24 hours. A dose of 600 milligrams a day is not unusual. This would stop the breathing and kill anyone not accustomed to the drug. Norco and Vicodin are a combination of the opioid and Tylenol, which is acetaminophen. Since physicians know that 30 of the 325 milligram Tylenol tablets in one day can be fatal, this limits prescribing. Opioid hyperalgesia is closely related. This describes people who have increased sensitivity to pain after chronic use. For example, my patient Sally had a hysterectomy. Her gynecologist prescribed Percocet, an opioid, to deal with her pain. He continued giving her the medication for months instead of stopping it after a week or two. She finally weaned herself off the drug without help. Later, when I performed a minor surgery for her, she suffered several months of severe pain and required opioids. If her gynecologist had not overprescribed, she would likely have been less sensitive to this pain. 
The next section is entitled, How the Disaster Developed. Before the mid-1990s, doctors prescribed opioids carefully and in limited quantities for disease-related pain. But in 1990, Scientific American published an article entitled, The Tragedy of Needless Pain. It advocated looser prescribing. Quote, Contrary to popular belief, morphine taken solely to control pain is not addictive. Yet patients worldwide continue to be undertreated and to suffer unnecessary agony. After this, the indications for these drugs was broadened to include many types of acute and chronic pain. By 2001, the FDA was pressured to sanction broader prescribing, and they instituted formal guidelines to achieve this. The Joint Commission, then known as the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, or JCAHO, issued a mandate to treat pain more aggressively. Purdue Pharma was a multi-billion dollar company privately owned by the Sackler family. It bears a heavy share of the blame for today's crisis. The company claimed their OxyContin did not create tolerance, did not make users high, and had less than a 1% addiction rate. Purdue's marketing blew up nationwide opioid sales. They paid for 20,000 seminars to teach doctors the new treatment guidelines. Forty of these were all expense paid, including airfare. They made a $100,000 donation to the Federation of State Medical Boards for materials to educate doctors about the pain problem. Tracing other monies is harder, but Purdue likely gave millions to influence policy in various ways. Pain became the, quote, fifth vital sign. New standards of care statements soon commanded providers to ask every patient about it as they checked the heart rate, blood pressure, respiration, and temperature. If doctors did not prescribe enough opioids, their state medical boards might discipline them. Hospitals might suffer adverse publicity from pain advocacy groups. Purdue sent hundreds of representatives to thousands of doctors' offices targeting primary care physicians who had no prior training in pain management. They gave away dinners, free bottles of samples, and much more. They focused on poverty areas with Medicaid patients whose medications were free through the program. Purdue also abducted or sometimes manufactured agendas for charity groups. For example, the American Chronic Pain Association, ACPA, has industry funding that included Purdue until recently. The American Pain Foundation, disbanded in 2012, probably destroyed by terrible publicity. The American Pain Society, APS, is now considering bankruptcy because their credibility has also been shredded. They received tens of thousands of dollars of industry sponsorship for their annual conference, and Pfizer paid for their grant funding. News stories saying that 100 million Americans live with pain were everywhere. Since pharmaceutical industry sources promoted this number, it was discredited. Purdue Pharma gave $3 million to Harvard's Mass General Hospital to rename its pain center the Purdue Pharma Pain Center. As part of the deal, the drug makers supplied clinical education coursework for pain management standards. These details became public when hundreds of entities, including entire states, sued Purdue. The nation was soon swimming in OxyContin. It was cheap, available everywhere, and readily used by crushing, chewing, snorting, or even injecting. Exposures at parties, or through loose prescribing by doctors operating out of pill mills, uncovered more and more vulnerable individuals. 
Purdue and other pharmaceutical companies exposed an entire generation of Americans to the drugs, and the susceptible ones became addicted. At first, it was cheap and available. Purdue was the ringleader, but it was only responsible for about 3% of the oxycodone and hydrocodone sold in the U.S. between 2006 and 2012. The big distributors, McKesson Corporation, Walgreens, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, CVS, and Walmart sold 75%. Johnson & Johnson was also heavily involved. They were ordered in 2019 to pay $571 million for their part addicting just a single state, Oklahoma. They sold opioid products to Purdue and also funded fake advocacy groups. In 2020, plaintiffs bankrupted the U.S. division of Malincrot, the largest single generic producer, with a $1.6 billion settlement. Its overseas affiliates are still thriving, however. When the wave of overdoses caught national attention, prescription supplies tightened, prices went up, and people who couldn't afford legitimate opioids used heroin. Dealers often sold this right outside legitimate pain clinics. Addicts did not need needles because they could smoke it. Mexican dealers developed a sophisticated distribution and marketing system into the U.S., including free delivery to the customer. Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo, a billionaire drug lord now in U.S. prison, was the most famous of the leaders who orchestrated it. Just like Purdue, his dealers offered free samples, the first taste, as the addicts say. But they could never have been as successful as they were without the massive demand created by the prescriptions. Soon, hundreds of thousands were dying. The New Hampshire chief medical examiner could not handle performing so many autopsies on young overdose patients, so he quit and entered the priesthood. Federal prosecutors sued Purdue Pharma, who confessed to their criminal acts in 2007 and settled for $600 million. Three of their top administrators pleaded guilty to criminal charges and paid $34.5 million in fines. No one went to jail. Purdue designed the settlement to protect itself from new lawsuits, but Kentucky, Ohio, New Hampshire, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and thousands of individual plaintiffs pressed on. Purdue could afford the litigation for over a decade because its total OxyContin sales through 2019 were $35 billion. But by the fall of that year, the plaintiffs forced it into bankruptcy. The Sackler descendants, who still privately own Purdue, are also being sued, and as of the publication date, they agreed to contribute $3 billion to the settlement. Between 2008 and 17, as the opioid crisis worsened, they withdrew $10.7 billion from the corporation and moved the money into Swiss and other foreign accounts. The plaintiffs are still after them. The next section is entitled Treatments. Addicts are more stable and cause less trouble when they can get drugs legally. Methadone is a 24-hour opioid that has been available in Germany since 1937. In the 1960s, it began to be used as a heroin substitute to treat addiction long-term. To prevent resale of the methadone, addiction clinics provide it in a liquid form to be swallowed on the spot. More recently, short-term tablet prescriptions have become available. Taking this drug is preferable to a user cycling through short-acting injectable street opioids and having withdrawals every few hours. The clinics have used this cheap drug for decades. Methadone has drawbacks. 
such as unsanctioned use, although addicts do not like it as much as heroin. Most users are unemployable. The addiction continues, and kicking it is much worse than heroin or OxyContin. These require less than a week, but methadone takes many weeks. Buprenorphine, an opioid that has effects lasting three days, was first used to treat addicts in the 1990s. It causes less sleepiness than methadone, so some people can work while taking it. In 2002, a pharmaceutical company combined it with naloxone, the opioid antagonist that counters opioid effects, to create suboxone, which is a patented drug. This is used as an opioid substitute that addicts take chronically as a replacement drug. It was designed to be tough to abuse. If addicts dissolve it in water and inject it, the naloxone component causes an unpleasant withdrawal. The corporations price Suboxone extravagantly. By 2013, its annual sales were $1.55 billion, more than Viagra and Adderall combined. They market it for use over a year or longer, and since it is severely addictive, this is the near-universal outcome. The longer a drug lasts, the longer the withdrawal, and buprenorphine often requires months of withdrawal. Waves of severe depression often accompany the usual opioid-induced nausea, anxiety, muscle pain, sleep disturbance, and abdominal cramps. The next section is entitled More Recent History. Our addiction problems have become progressively worse. Over 2 million Americans were dependent on opioids in 2015. That year, doctors in the U.S. gave one person in three a prescription for opioids, 95 million total. This was more than all the tobacco users. In 2016, 64,000 died in the U.S. from drug overdoses, mostly from opioids. That year, the U.S. used 80% of the world's opioids and took 99% of the total Vicodin. Overdoses were not a daily event when I worked in emergency rooms in the 1980s. By 2014, opioid consumption caused 1.27 million emergency visits and hospitalizations in the U.S., 60% more than 2005. A CDC report said suspected opioid overdoses increased 30% between 2016 and 17. Street and prescription opioids are Siamese twins, each fueling the other's growth. Heroin is a sideshow compared with, to the prescriptions. But supply grew to meet demand as OxyContin and its relatives became more regulated and pricey. In a 2014 survey of people in opioid treatment, 94% said that they used heroin only because prescription opioids were too expensive and hard to get. Pharmaceutical opioid sales, overdose death rates, and substance use treatment hospitalizations increased in lockstep from 1999 to 2008. That's from a New England Journal of Medicine article in 2016. Fentanyl, the nightmarish gift from the drug industry, is now primarily made in illegal drug labs. This short-acting synthetic opioid is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine and 30 to 50 times more potent than heroin. Tiny doses may produce a high, an overdose, or even a fatality. It is sometimes mixed with or mistaken for heroin. This confusion has caused many deaths. Another hazard is that reversing an overdose requires large doses of Narcan. In 2009, 
in 2016, black market fentanyl surpassed prescription opioids as the most common cause of overdose death in the United States. Sources were mainly China and India, and the drugs were often transported through Mexico. America has a homegrown supply. In July 2017, six senior executives and managers from the Incess Therapeutics Corporation pleaded guilty to paying kickbacks to doctors to induce them to prescribe their fentanyl spray subsis. As revealed by internal whistleblowers, the company gave physicians cash, dinners, and sometimes even offered corporate prostitutes. The company encouraged excessive doses and fraudulent insurance billing. One physician prescribed over $3 million worth of patches. For a single patient, Medicare paid $250,000 for 18 prescriptions in 14 months. She died of an overdose. In October 2017, prosecutors arrested the 76-year-old billionaire owner and majority shareholder John Kapoor for leading this nationwide conspiracy. They found him and four other executives guilty in 2019. The sentence was 66 months in prison and a fine of $225 million, which must have been lunch money for him. Insys was forced to admit to the kickback scheme and went into bankruptcy. The Chinese are the primary suppliers for our street fentanyl. Because it is so concentrated, dealers mail large doses in tiny packages internationally with little chance of interception. We are to blame along with the Chinese. They are just responding to the demand we created. The West used opium as a weapon against them in the 1800s, and this is a kind of reversal. The next section is entitled Pain Treatments. Most pain is self-limited if never treated with opioids. Given what we know, I have a hard time conceiving that any physician would prescribe these drugs for more than a few weeks after an auto accident or use them long-term for back pain. Even worse, why would any physician increase the dose for tolerance if the patient did not have cancer? But opioid disasters are everywhere because of the persistent idea that we must treat all pain. My experience with post-operative cosmetic surgery patients is that they rarely need heavy drugs. When used, they help for a few days to a week at most. After that, nausea, confusion, and constipation are worse than any remaining pain. I encourage our healthy post-operative patients to take two 200-milligram Motrin and two 500-milligram Tylenol three to four times a day for a few days. If they insist on more, I give them 10 of the 5-milligram Norco, which is the Tylenol opioid combination. When taking this, I instruct them to avoid regular Tylenol to avoid getting too much. Quote, pain doctors were responsible for much of this problem, and quote, addiction specialists are now stuck dealing with it. Through the 1980s, physicians were careful about the type and amount of opioids prescribed. They feared addicting patients and being criticized by colleagues. The new prescribing guidelines emboldened entrepreneurs, however, and pain centers started appearing on every street corner. Lately, they've been closing down. Behind closed doors, pain doctors and their staff agree. They say, quote, most of my patients are addicts and I hate working here. They know that part of their work has devolved into drug dealing. The more optimistic side of the story is that addiction physicians have recently been managing the problem better. Their usual plan is to taper the opioids over months. They try to avoid Suboxone because of the terrific addiction and terrible withdrawal. 
Sensible laws initially allowed only 30 Suboxone patients per doctor, but this was liberalized to 100 or 275 if physicians met certain conditions. Kaiser Permanente of Southern California is serious about pain management. They gradually reduced their pain patients' doses down to 100 milligrams or less of opioid equivalent a day. Their doctors are on salary and have no perverse incentive to increase procedures or office visits. I interviewed several pain specialists. The ones in private practice need not advertise because there is an avalanche of patients in their waiting rooms. I saw grandmothers and other people who looked exactly like the people found in any internist's office. They never took street drugs. Their physicians had addicted them. Some observers, including many in our own ranks, claim that lax prescribing standards caused the debacle. But legislatures have recently constructed tighter controls. Since the new prescribing standards, it is harder for physicians to create an addict. In California, for example, a rule now says that we must use a data bank to check nearly any medication we prescribe, including those for blood pressure and cholesterol. This is expensive, excessive, and egregious, but it is a well-meaning attempt to induce oversight. Our exam rooms are still full of addicts created over the past two decades. It's a painful problem for everyone. The next section is Perspective by Abraham Katz, MD. Dr. Yoho is in his mid-60s and I am in my late 30s. I went to school during the era when the, quote, tragedy of needless pain became a concern. Based on my training, study, and experience, I believe that patients other than those with cancer and acute surgical problems may benefit from chronic opioid use. Our prescribing, however, has gone too far and is now part of the problem. The pendulum may have swung in the wrong direction. For example, my father had terminal cancer. During his recovery after a painful surgery, the doctor gave him one milligram of morphine IV every six hours. This is an ineffective dose, and we requested that the doctors also give him Tylenol, which controlled his pain better than the tiny dose of morphine. Opioids are the most potent medications we have for treating pain, and there are situations where they are appropriate. We must always consider alternatives first, but we should use opioids when they are necessary. The last word by the author. Our policy of slaughtering our populace by bathing them in opioids dwarfs any complaints by legitimate pain patients. We must limit these drugs to cancer, heart attacks, severe injuries, and post-surgical pain. There are a few exceptions to this traditional approach, but they do not come to mind for me.